and all money will have to compete with open source money for the user's consent, right? So people, whatever financial infrastructure people find serves them the best, they're going to vote with their feet. Welcome to a Bit Cryptic Podcast, where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Today, we are with Miku Matsumura. He is founder of the Evercoin Exchange. And he's an investor and advisor to many top successful cryptocurrency companies. And he has raised over $50 million in venture capital. He is a venture partner with Bitbull Capital. His accolades go on, but we do need to start the podcast already. And you can find him more at Miko.com, and we'll, we'll give that link afterwards. My name is Jeff Peterson. And this is Alain Leon, a.k.a. Bitcoin Van Gogh. And Miko, I must say, we are super excited to have someone of your caliber on the podcast. I know you have a huge wealth of knowledge and experience that I think people are really going to learn a lot from today. So welcome. Welcome. That's terrific. Thanks so much. Uh, appreciate the uh, shout out. It's my pleasure. Our pleasure. Why don't we start first by talking a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So I think that the best way to characterize myself is a 25-year uh, open source zealot. So I've really been working a lot on startup companies, in particular on open source startups, starting with my first significant role here in Silicon Valley as the chief Java evangelist. So, you know, there was a time when the Java programming language was young, and uh, I was part of that team and really excited about bringing that technology. So, you know, this is really back in 1995 and in the early days of consumerization of the internet, that's kind of where my roots are. And so, you know, I've been working on various kinds of open source software projects all along until what I call open source money. Open source money is something that's happened along a lot more recently. I think it is just a completely transformed game from what we've been playing in the past. Miko, why open source? Is there a philosophy behind that? Is just what you got started with? Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes, I really got hooked on open source just because it really is this kind of proving ground for consent-based economies, right? So the thing that's amazing to me about open source, if you look inside of GitHub, you're going to see about a trillion dollars, give or take, of software that's been built for free, pretty much without any kind of incentive model in sight. So the thing that's astonishing about all of this is, is that open source software is eating all of software. And so for me, the excitement about open source software is really that it's just a very logical system for imparting knowledge and for basically making innovation, I would almost call it permanent, right? Which is this kind of evolutionary matrix for advancing society in terms of, uh, you know, intellectual property of software. Okay. So in a way you think that because open source is out there, and I guess maybe that was some of the promise of open source, everybody has access to it, everybody can improve upon it and sort of cycle through it faster than 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 a private company would or could if they did not release their code and they attempted to iterate through it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my mindset and what made me kind of fall in love with open source uh, from the beginning is really that kind of 
incredibly open community vibe. Just, you know, people really are all working together on a phenomenon. Uh, and once it's figured out, it just becomes part of the infrastructure, right? So, you know, and the, the thing that, that constantly happens in open source is that the high water mark keeps coming up, right? There's, there's really, you know, once you reach a certain steady state, you think, oh, well, we're pretty stable and we're pretty good. And, you know, things just keep getting incrementally better and better. So, you know, I feel like that's the magic of it. I think by its nature, it just is this sort of self-improving matrix. Uh, and it, it's all, it's all about competing for people's consent. And that, that to me is exciting and, you know, it's intellectually stimulating. Good deal. What do you mean when you say it's competing for people's consent? Yeah, that's the essential nature. So the thing that's exciting about it is if you look at open source and the history of open source, people were basically participating in it voluntarily. Uh, I think the consent on the user side is a little bit easier to figure out than the consent on the developer side. It's a multi-sided market. And the idea behind it is that developers mostly just did it for fame or they did it for glory. They did it for fun. Sometimes their company would have a need to use the project, but instead of just mooching, they would contribute back. Or maybe that their company had a unique bug that they needed fixed faster and instead of waiting for the open source community, they would fix that bug. But of course, they would then contribute it back to the community so that everyone can benefit from that. So I feel like when I, when I talk about competition for consent, in a way, it's like a Darwinistic engine, only the only thing that matters is consent on, on both sides, on the development, on the production side, as well as consent on the user side. Now, when I say consent is easier on the user side, you know, everybody likes free software. So I feel like it's easier to get people to consent to use software if it's given out for free. But you know, the thing that's fascinating is, is that it does compete with commercial software. What I believe has happened to proprietary software is probably what will happen to proprietary money. Mm, it'll go extinct? Well, so proprietary software fascinatingly still exists. So there are still these things called software companies. And the thing that's kind of fascinating is that the software companies that exist today are actually even more profitable in aggregate. So the software industry is actually a larger industry than it ever has been. However, the rules of the game are basically set by open source software. So to me, what's happening is, is that the platform and all the commodity features of the platform are defined by open source. And so open source has kind of set the tone and much the way that open source has kind of become the rules for the software industry. I feel like open source money is going to set the rules for all money, and all money will have to compete with open source money for the user's consent, right? So people, whatever uh, financial infrastructure people find serves them the best, they're going to vote with their feet. So I think that's a really interesting uh, you know, state that we've arrived at. Now, it took a while for open source software to gain ground. For a while, you know, Microsoft seemed impenetrable. It seemed like, you know, they would take over the world. And it's interesting that now that, you know, they have .NET Core, which is open source. Uh, do you and think Linux. That, and yeah, yeah, they're big, big supporters of that as well. Do you think that open source money will take us long, will take longer, will go quicker? Do you think that the consent on the user's side will be uh, faster? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny that you should talk about Microsoft. I actually had this great sushi lunch with another famous evangelist back in the day, Guy Kawasaki, who's the evangelist for the Macintosh platform at Apple. 
And, you know, he said something really funny to me where I was describing Java to him. This is very early on. And he said, he said, Hey, that, that's not going to work. And, you know, I asked him, Hey, Hey, why, why do you think Java isn't going to work? And his whole thesis was you can't beat Microsoft. Which I thought was, I thought <laughs> yeah. that was really interesting. That's and I what think everybody it, thought, yeah. Yeah, that was what was happening at the time, right? But I think the thing that's fascinating is, is that ultimately it's the funny thing about this kind of concept of a consent system is that it just keeps going and going and going. So I feel, but here's the thing is you talked about how fast things are. So the thing that I think, the reason why I'm so pumped up right now about what's happening in this crypto sphere is that I feel like we've been doing something that I think of as almost like solar energy, right? Which is open source is built very slowly, right? It's it's taken 25 years just to get to where we are today. And, you know, we, and open source has probably been going for even longer than that. But, uh, you know, what I would say is this, which is it's because the incentive models were very kind of loosey-goosey. But the thing that's really Mm -hmm. fascinating about what's happened with cryptocurrency is, is not only are the developers, like, highly incentivized but the users actually get highly incentivized to participate and in fact the users and the miners and everybody who's participating gets incentivized by the network itself right so to me the thing that's really kind of a jaw-dropping phenomenon here is that we've moved from you know something that you might think of as something like uh, solar energy to something like fusion you know where each network has its own power plant that power plant is really powering just radical incentivization so instead of just being like well you know we have this evolutionary matrix and people keep contributing to it you know because they feel like it it really has has taken on like a a very fervent quality because people people's livelihoods are depending on these these things really quickly you know, and, and people are, are gaining financial independence and freedom from these things very, very quickly. And that's that's astonishing. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the movement, the crypto movement, the open source money, as you called it, might take considerable hold, probably less than 25 years. Oh, I think it'll probably be more like 25 months. I mean, the thing the thing is on a tear. Obviously, it hasn't gone kind of nonlinear until fairly recently. But I think that, you know, it's it's in a, a bit of a rampage mode. One of the things that's happened in, is this crazy so-called ICO phenomenon, you know, which is which has been party to raising about six billion in kind of new tokens. And that's that's kind of what I consider to be like a huge talent grab. If you really want to kind of add a bunch of talent to this uh, open source community, you know, having six billion bucks sloshing around doesn't hurt. It doesn't. Yeah, it's a giant magnet for people. Uh, everyone, everyone I know is getting interested in crypto. All the, all my talented friends are, uh, are getting sucked in. Yeah. I was talking with a partner at a pretty well-known venture capital firm and he, he's raising a crypto, dedicated crypto fund. I asked him, Hey, Hey, why, why are you raising a, a dedicated crypto fund? And he said, you know, all the best talent that we know are bringing us crypto deals. Right. So in a way, like they were just feeling a little boxed in. They were basically like, Hey, if we want to even participate, in this amazing kind of talent that's kind of come out of nowhere, you know, then we should, we should do that. And, you know, I think what, what is happening is that people are smelling the disruption, right? Because the thing that's astonishing about these network based incentive models is that they create an additional network effect on top of any other pre existing network effect, right? So to me, you know, that's, that's a really interesting property. And to me, I I like to think of all that under the rubric of what I call programmable money. I know people like the term smart contracts. I don't think 
those are particularly smart. And I don't think necessarily that we should restrict the scope of our mindset to the contracts themselves. Like, for example, if you look at Bitcoin, the Bitcoins actually care about Bitcoin, the blockchain, right? If you look at Ethereum, the Ether actually cares about Ethereum in the sense that, you know, if you help to secure the network, you're going to acquire more coins, you know, and that's incentivized, you know, and the thing that's really interesting is that all of those behaviors of where those things go is, you know, it's deterministic as according to the code that's been written. Whereas if you look at something like the generic default behavior of US dollars, obviously, there are ways to programmatically manipulate US dollars. And that's basically, you know, the entire financial system that we've built. But, you know, the thing that's really interesting about that is that it doesn't have any inherent behavior, programmatic behavior. So we're, we're, we're creating, this is kind of a, not only just evolution in open source software, but it's actually literally evolution of money in the sense that the money has become smart. Like the money now has opinions and, you know, money didn't have opinions before. Literally smart money. Yeah, exactly. And so to me, like when you have smart money, the money actually can defend or protect or incentivize the network and the actors in the network, right? So, you know, that's pretty astonishing. If you want to create like a network effect, if you want to create uh, this kind of incentivized behavior, then, you know, having programmable money is the it's that's where you should start. And, uh, you know, I think right now, there's a lot of experimentation on how best to do that. And, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of pretty, pretty neat innovations. So a lot of the uh, folks in the crypto community, when they talk about, as you call it, programmable money or just crypto in general, one of the big aspects to them is the fact that kind of separates money and government. But as I hear you speak, you don't really mention that aspect of it. To you, it seems that one of that almost the important part of it is that it's programmable and what that can open up for the future, not necessarily because of some sort of political aspect to it. Yeah, so uh, to me, the the reason why I'm kind of basically ignoring government or non-government is is that I'm really thinking about or reasoning about this whole thing as the unfolding of an open source landscape. So at the moment, governments are the purveyors of what I would call proprietary money. Right. And the thing that's kind of fascinating is, is that that doesn't necessarily have to remain exclusively the case. And in fact, we're already seeing examples of national governments that are releasing cryptocurrencies, you know, so, so the point that I would make and, and open source ones, intriguingly enough. And so the thing that I think is interesting and orthogonal is, is that if you, if you reason about the space from the perspective of what an open source money will do, you know, it'll essentially commoditize and tilt the playing field in favor of its matrix, right? So the thing that's fascinating is, is that if you have a proprietary money, it actually competes in the global contest against open source money and, and you know, and programmable money, right? So the thing that's mm-hmm. interesting is, is you could create a centralized money, but now it's in a contest and it's in a contest that's based on consent, right? So that's the fascinating thing about the nature of the game is, is that, you know, now proprietary monies compete with open source monies for consent. And the thing that's fascinating as you start to see the game unfold is that people will vote with their feet. Now, obviously, there's still interesting levers to pull. Obviously, there are things like regulatory levers that can be pulled to kind of tilt the playing field back towards proprietary money. But the thing that's fascinating about the arc of history is that, you know, it, it, unless something extraordinary happens, it'll be very difficult to put this genie back in the bottle, right? Because one of the things that's fascinating about regulation is, is that 
It's hard to regulate something like the tide, right? I'll give you an example. In Korea, the prime, there was a, there was a individual who was, who was really trying hard to regulate the cryptocurrency world and essentially ban, ban it. And, you know, the political motivations in Korea are so intense because it's become clear that the North Koreans are, are doing mining and they're doing a bunch of uh, sanctions evasions using cryptocurrency. So, you know, you can imagine the South Korean government, the pressure that they must feel to regulate, right? So, you know, this, this is kind of an awful event, but you know, the, the, the person who was trying hard to regulate this, he died of a heart attack and it's, there's an investigation, but it, you know, it just appears, I think he was 50 years old or something like that. And, you know, it just appears that he just had unbelievable stress. And the thing that you also have to imagine is you have to imagine that the total dollar volume on BitThumb, the largest Korean uh, crypto exchange, is larger than the volume of the Korean stock exchange, right? So it's a larger daily oh my God. volume than KSX, right? So the, the point that I would make is uh, it's hard to stop, right? It's very, very hard to stop, even if you have an incredibly strong political will to, to stop it. And so, you know, to me, putting the genie back in the bottle is is going to be difficult, especially when you start to see domicile competition, right? So what's happening is, is that there are other countries, you know, for example, in Asian, the Asian, Asian region, uh, Japan is making a very strong effort to be friendly, uh, be a friendly domicile. And uh, as a function of that, you know, they gained more than 50% of the entire planet's cryptocurrency exchange volume uh, principally thanks to China and Korea, who have been more restrictive. So, uh, you know, domicile competition will kind of also help to keep this thing from the genie from being put back in the bottle. So mm. I guess to make a long story short, you know, I, I feel like it's the, the world is now in this competition for consent based on an open source money uh, paradigm. So you're essentially saying that um, you kept saying they can't put the genie back in the bottle. It's a bright future for crypto. Yeah, I think it's inevitable. The thing that's fascinating will be the journey, right? Because my mindset is, is that there will be twists and turns. Obviously, there's kind of volatility. You know, crypto is obviously uh, janky. So it does doesn't do what people want or expect. But the thing that I think we learned in uh, <clears throat> September 15th of 2008 is centrally regulated economies don't do what people expect either and are not entirely under the control of central regimes either. So I think from the perspective of economics, we're all now Austrian economists and we don't believe in the supreme power of central organization to be all knowledgeable about markets, right? So so really the notion that decentralized intelligence is the best tool that we have, that may actually be uh, something worth worth uh, exploring. And I think that's what we're doing as a civilization is we're really exploring the possibility that a decentralized financial infrastructure will actually outperform a centralized financial infrastructure, particularly as we've added the innovation of programmability to it. Okay, I see that. It makes a lot of sense. It's a very interesting viewpoint that I haven't heard before, Nate. This is why I'm glad we brought you on, Miko. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a strange one, but I think that from my lens, like where I've been sitting, Mark Andreessen said software is eating the world. And, you know, I'll be darned if open source hasn't been eating software the whole time. Hmm. So, you know, I feel like that's an inevitable kind of machination, right? It's a sort of an evolutionary matrix. So that's kind of the thing that uh, has caught my eye. Have you ever heard of the book, The Starfish and the Spider? 
Yes, by uh, Ori Brathman. It's a very, uh, it's excellent. Uh, you notice that uh, Blockchain Capital has a starfish as their logo. So there's no question that decentralization, you know, is is in the air, right? The, uh, the whole notion of, you know, if you cut a starfish like right in the middle, it'll, you'll end up with two starfish, you know, and if you, if you completely bisect a spider, then you'll end up with a dead spider. So I think, I think that's the core idea behind that. And I think it's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I definitely think it's a great read. Uh, the other book that I'd love to recommend to the readers is a thing called The Book of Satoshi. So it's fascinating thing. It's basically a curated collection of Satoshi Nakamoto emails. It's, it's actually a really lovely audiobook as well as a, a regular print book. And, uh, I just recommend it highly. It's a, it's a wonderful experience to kind of, hear the original words of the creator of bitcoin and I, that's that is what i believe that you are hearing when you when you experience that that curated collection of the satoshi nakamoto emails is you know i i believe you are hearing the words of the creator of bitcoin now, obviously you know there's all these conspiracy theories people say you know satoshi nakamoto spelled backwards is nsa you know it's just <laughs> you know stuff like that but like yeah, you know it's it's it, to me like when you are able to digest that, you do get, at least I got, an extremely strong impression of like a, an open source project leader as well as an incredible kind of designer. And, you know, to me, it's hard to have the experience of listening to those uh, emails and audio and, and walking away and thinking that that author of those emails was not the author of the white paper as well as the original contributor and as as we know from studying i think it was uh collabnet or the original bithub repository there was an account also called satoshi nakamoto that built uh pretty much you know the reference implementation from zero up to the point where you know he was joined by hal finney and and others uh gavin and the rest of the early bitcoin gang right and so it, it seems consistent that that all the the open source reference implementation author, the email writer, as well as the white paper author, like it seems like there is a being there. That was my impression. Uh, you may enjoy that book and come away with a completely different impression. But that 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 was you know. But the, part of the joy of of having the experience of that is being able to directly make your own conjecture. And I do believe that. You know, Bitcoin is an incredibly seminal project. So people have lots of things to say about Bitcoin, but it's hard to imagine that we would be here in crypto without that white paper and reference implementation. Uh, that contribution, I think, is absolutely seminal. It is. It is. Now, I personally had not heard of that book. I am going to pick it up. I I love reading a lot of, I think there's a couple sites that have a lot of his postings, everything together. Now, you threw out the word Austrian before. And I'd like to know, in your personal estimation, do you believe that Satoshi, if if because you seem to think he he was an actual person, was it an Austrian economist or knew about it? Like, did he know what he was doing when he set up this system, or was informed from the Austrian perspective? Well, so it's fascinating actually, because during the book of Satoshi, there's a wonderful feeling of his adoption of libertarian principles and politics. And so to me, like as these email conversations flow naturally, it's so intriguing, right? Because if in fact 
he he truly was kind of discovering and adopting these principles, then it would suggest that he didn't come out of the box with those principles. And obviously there's all kinds of conspiracies that you could generate that he was being disingenuous and that he was kind of inventing his own discovery of these principles. But to me, I think the, the most, the Occam's razor, sim- most simplistic view is that, you know, he, he, he was an incredible designer fascinated by the concept of, you know, if you go to Bitcoin.org, which presumably uh, he registered, uh, the title tag says open source peer-to-peer money. And, you know, if you kind of look at that as sort of a seed crystal idea, then you start to kind of understand that he really may have been thinking about this in the context of an open source decentralization project, but that the the, the thing that, you know, all, all of those words are so meaningful in the sense of open source, but also the sense of peer-to-peer, right? So to me, like, obviously, like, he he borrowed from, like, Hashcash, mm-hmm. and, you know, he borrowed from other pre-existing works, you know, so there were some tremendous kind of academic works, and, you know, there was actually a email anti-spam system that used postage, and so the, the notion that you want to make it economically insurmountable to launch a sort of essentially 51% network attack in the form of some kind of a spam or denial of service. You know, that notion of making it prohibitively expensive to do that and then creating this kind of implicit proof of stake model where anyone with that much hash power would actually profit more if they just mined. You know, so all of these kind of very complex game theoretical constructs, I think, are really part of, I think, the mindset of a designer who is very kind of astute and was really intrigued by kind of human behavior at scale. And to me, the, the, the magic has been that it's, you know, it seems to have scaled vastly beyond what anyone could have imagined or hoped in the early days. But at the same time, uh, it also seems to be holding up, right? So that, that's a, that's an amazing, achievement um so so to me like for example if you look at the bitcoin genesis block there's actually some really interesting kind of lore baked into the genesis block which is you know if you look at it there's actually a a funny uh headline to an article that's kind of been posted in there it's a it's it's basically uh there's a parameter which is called a coinbase parameter it's not actually named after the, actually the coin, Coinbase is actually named after the Coinbase parameter, not after, you know, anyhow. Uh, but the point that I would make is, is that it actually has an article from the, the Times and it, and it basically says January 3rd, 2009, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks, which is the, uh, that's, that's the text in hexadecimal, uh, which is kind of fascinating. Mm. So, what, uh, yeah. What I mean by it's fascinating is it's fascinating that that's baked into the Genesis block of Bitcoin, both in the sense that it declares a uh, headline, which is, I think, proof of the existence of a certain date, because it's basically declaring a headline from a newspaper on a given day. But it also is kind of fascinating to think that it is a headline about 
uh, bank out, bank bailouts. So anyhow, uh, so I, I'm just trying to make like, a political statement with his his code, possibly right. But it's fascinating to kind of go through these kinds of uh, artifacts because you know when you do kind of troll through the history of Bitcoin, you know you can just kind of look at these things and think, well, was this part of the mindset or not? And you know, it's my conjecture that Satoshi Nakamoto was a brilliant game theoretician and designer, and in fact, pseudonymity was part of his design in the sense that when you think about the notion of uh, the extraction of dependency on a trusted third party, in a sense, you could actually see himself designing the concept of a founder out of the system, right? So in a sense, it's possible that Satoshi Nakamoto designed him or herself out of the system before even launching the system, right? Because the tracks are so beautifully covered because there was never actually someone who subsequently had to go pseudonymous or anonymous or, you know, change their name and disappear. Like, you know, from day one, there was only this created pseudonymous entity. So, you know, nobody had to fake their death is what you're saying. Correct. Which is, you know, so to me, like the way I look at that is I look at that as forethought. Like, I think that is like an amazing designer who is realizing their design. Uh, So, you know, that's, that's been, uh, that's that's but a lot of that's conjecture. Anyhow, uh fascinating uh stuff and you know, I highly recommend the uh book of Satoshi. It reminds me of the the book um The Starfish and the Spider. One of the principles of a decentralized organization is that you don't really have any one leader that kind of holds it back and that it actually empowers the organization and makes it more stronger by not having a centralized leader and maybe that's a yes, principle he was yes. trying to That's exactly my idea is that like you know if you actually cut the spider exactly if you bisect a spider right in the middle you're probably going to go through the brain you know and that will be the end of the spider right so i think in a way like i think satoshi may have been contemplating satoshilessness you know as a feature rather than as a bug right so this notion of hey uh let's just start without anything like that and you know you could argue that the ethereum blockchain has a vitalik and you know if you remember the, there was a one day crash as a function of this rumor that Vitalik had been hit by a bus, right? And he actually did that wonderful proof of life tweet, you know, with the most recent block hash, right? So he, he <laughs> tweeted himself holding, you know, uh, the written out version yeah. of that hash, which, you know, which is amazing, right? So that was, that was the kind of proof of life tweet message and you know and everyone and everyone was like wow okay like that's that's him and that's the real thing but you know but it shows you the vulnerability of having a centralized leadership that's that's an amazing thing right so you know and uh he and he's he's been tremendous like his leadership has been tremendous and it's you know wisdom definitely beyond his years so i think you know in some sense like the ethereum blockchain has been incredibly blessed or lucky or uh, you know maybe you know it's great because of who he is to the core you know but you know besides just pure technical leadership like he's shown an incredible amount of kind of moral leadership and you know he's certainly stepped back from Fenbushi capital you know in order to focus on things like ethereum scaling so you know I, i've never met vitalik buterin but like if if there is to be some kind of like centralized you know, lordship over a, a chain, you know, let it, let it <laughs> let be, it be let metallic, it, let it be yes, metallic. Correct. <laughs> let it be somewhat of that nature, you know, and I think, I think, uh, you know, Satoshi just did something different and that's, 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 these are all such amazing 
creatures and you know i I mean these these organisms these blockchains you know they're they're all different so one quick question on on ethereum and vitalik while we're on it do you think ethereum would have bounced back as fast or at all after the uh dao fiasco it had it not been for somebody like vitalik that you know in in many ways they they see you know some people see him as like some alien from outer space that's like non-human and that's why he can do <laughs> what he does you know he's probably an alien i mean he's uh he was born in like 1994 so he's like i think he's like 24 so you know how, how right like how how does that happen how does a person like you know it's it's totally unreal but you know the thing that i think is probably true is that the ethereum blockchain has has maintained its integrity more as a function of that centralization point uh you know in terms of the speed of reaction uh i don't necessarily think it's necessarily a speed issue and the reason why i would say that is is that you know the notion that someone could have forked you know ethereum to Ethereum Classic after the DAO hack, like, you know, open source, right? So anyone could have done it. It probably would have fragmented the community more. So instead of a pretty dominant Ethereum and a relatively weak Ethereum Classic, like, you know, it probably might have been more like 50-50 or something like that. Uh, you know, so I, I think um, having a kind of directionless, leaderless construct, you know, will definitely result in a lot more forking as we've seen with Bitcoin. Definitely. As much as I would love to talk about uh, the leaders in the blockchain space, we, I want to bring it back to you, Mika, because we have you on the podcast and you're a leader yourself of, in the blockchain space. So we want to hear more about about what you've been doing. Uh, I want to ask, uh, tell me a little bit about what it was like uh, creating the Evercoin exchange and and Maybe like what what is running exchange like? What is some, what are some of the things that people not realize like that goes into that? Like, I don't know. I want to hear more about what what running exchange is. Oh yes, exchange. An exchange is an incredibly weird place to sit in terms of the catbird seat of kind of watching the crypto world. I think how did that come to pass? It was a pretty incredible experience for me. One of the open source software companies that I worked at was called Hazelcast. And Hazelcast is used for high-frequency trading. If you've ever purchased anything from the Apple uh, online store, you've used Hazelcast. It's used kind of as an ultra-high-speed caching system for high-frequency trading at most investment banks. And so it's a pretty neat project. But the founder of Hazelcast, he and I worked together on Hazelcast. You know, he he decided to get into this whole cryptocurrency world. So he he basically, you know, we were hanging out one day and, you know, at a Starbucks and he, he was like, I'm really getting into this blockchain stuff. And I think we should, you know, work on a crypto company together. You know, so the, the funny thing about the history of it was, was we actually started with this Bitcoin debit card. We went pretty far down the road with the Bitcoin debit card business plan. And then we started realizing that like the entire business model was dependent on banks, right? In order to get a business card, you basically had to go beg banks and say, Hey banks, like, please give us a card. And the issuing bank would be like, well, let me think about it. Okay. You know, that kind of thing, you know, and if the banks decided not to do that, then you'd be out of business. So, you know, we just looked at all of that after a lot of study and said, this is not good. So instead, we kind of pivoted towards development of a 
uh, non-custodial uh, crypto-to-crypto exchange, which you can see at evercoin.com. Uh, we've since kind of launched mobile clients and, uh, you know, we're continuing to evolve the platform. But the I think the central theme of the whole thing for us is that we really want to advance the conversation around what we think of as the topic of custodial versus non-custodial exchanges and our exchange happens to be a non-custodial exchange, which means that we don't actually hold user funds. We, you know, when the user gives us coin A, as soon as we get enough confirmations to really truly believe that we have coin A, then we're immediately sending coin B, which is the exchange process. So, so for us, there is a, you know, the amount that you're transacting is, has a counterparty risk. You know, which is it's possible that our exchange will take your money and just be like, that didn't happen. But, you know, the repu- the, <laughs> the repu- yeah, well, the reputational risk to us is too high in the sense that the blockchain actually can show that it did happen. And if someone shows up and says, Hey, look at this, like, look at this thing. And that's that wallet is obviously them. And this wallet is me. And look at, I sent this in and I didn't get anything out. Like, you know, people ought to be able to prove that we, you know, took their money. And if they do prove it, then shame on us. Right. So, you know, so in some Has sense, that happened before? It, occasionally it happens where people have some weird transaction problem and we just support them you know and if they're like look at here's what happened and then we can be like oh i see what went wrong and then we can refund them so so in the history of running an exchange like there's a large volume of transactions and just about every possible thing that can happen like happens and so in in, in some statistical normative phenomena like for example like really weird things happen like crypto kitties like crypto kitties can actually take out either it took out like the whole ethereum blockchain for a little while so people would be like oh i'm here's here my bitcoin where's my you know ether and and the whole ethereum blockchain would be like sorry busy sorry we have have kitties to take care of yeah like we're more important than your transaction exactly we're petting all these kitties so like you know no no (laughs) transactions for you you know and so obviously in that circumstance you know customers could show up and be like look see this is me sending you the thing and we would look at and be like uh yeah we see your thing you obviously didn't get you know the ether that you requested so here it is you know so we we would just cash them out manually but you know, you know, using our support team. But the the thing that uh, I think is is fascinating is that I think the debate about crypto exchanges is actually all wrong, right? And what I mean by that is is that I think what's happening is we're seeing a weird pendular swing towards a decentralized exchange or DEX, right? So everyone's like DEX, 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 and they're all thinking centralized versus decentralized, but. The point actually is, you know, decentralized is actually a super cool buzzword. We all were talking about the starfish and the spider. So it's great, right? But the bottom line reality of it is, is that there's still some really big problems in DEX that have yet to find viable solutions. And so, like you know, be, um, for example, things like front running, right? So okay. now, now it's centralized. It's not that centralized exchanges can't front run in fact it's it's probably even easier right because if you're if you're an exchange and someone puts in a big order you're just going to look at them and be like oh that's a big order 
right? So, the, you know, as soon as you see a big order, you can front run. So, the, but the thing Could that- you explain what front running is for people yeah, yeah, who aren't yeah, familiar? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So front, front running is super simple, which is if someone makes kind of a market making order. So let's say, let's say someone is like, I want to sell a billion bitcoins, right? I, that's a kind of nonsense. But let's say someone says, you know, I want to sell a hundred thousand bitcoins, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as they put in that order, like, what do you think is going to happen to the price of bitcoins? Especially locally on that exchange. Exactly. Like, it's going to like, go bananas on, you know, especially local to that exchange, right? So as soon as you see an order like that, like the exchange can actually do weird things at that point. So for example, the exchange can actually withhold the the fact that it's received that order for a time while it prepares all kinds of trade counter trades against that happening, right? So it's like, it's like, oh, well, there was a weird delay in, you know, us fulfilling that order for some reason, you know, when in fact it was us like scrambling to counter trade that order so that we could make more money for ourselves, right? So that's called front running, right? Where, you know, you're basically taking advanced knowledge of an order and you're playing games, right? And so the thing that self arbitrage and things like that. Totally, totally. So you can do all these kind of crazy things, right? So the point, the point being that, you know, a centralized exchange obviously has a single counterparty risk for front running, right? Which is that the exchange itself is capable of front running your order. And you basically just have to trust that they're not doing that. However, the problem with the decentralized exchange is that you're now saying, you know, so, so in Satoshi land, you don't trust anybody, right? Now in, in centralized exchange land, you actually trust somebody which just kind of bothers everyone. So everyone's like, oh, I'm really bothered that I have to trust somebody. I'm trusting the exchange. But then when you move to Dex land, you're actually trusting like anybody, which is even more problematic, right? Because the thing that's really intriguing is this concept called minor front running, right? Which is that miners can actually like, because who's taking your order now? So the person taking your order is not the exchange in a literal sense. It's just a miner who happens to be operating the technology of the exchange and that miner can actually execute if the miner is behaving according to protocol then it could just you could just build a custom client that acts like it's doing the right thing and does the, ends up doing the wrong thing and it ends up front running you right so you know the the now you have a, a, a multi county party counterparty risk so you have this kind of like scenario where anybody can front run you and they should Right. So economics dictates that they should front run you because they can. And, you know, right. economic value can be then taken off the table by them. Right. So if I guess what I'm trying by to the system, they, they, should, they should take advantage of it. Yes, exactly. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, uh, you know, there are as yet unsolved problems in the arena of decentralized exchange. And, you know, my mindset around the future of exchanges is that it's going to go the way that the music industry went. So in the beginning of the transformation of digital music, you know, when we went to the online format, uh, you know, the, the was probably Napster, right? And so to me, Napster is what I call a centralized law defying music exchange. Right. So, so, you know, we all know what happened to Napster. It was basically not able to continue to be law defying and it was basically smushed. So, so there was a, another exchange service uh, for music called Kazaa, which was incorporated in, I think it was Tuvalu or some of these minor Pacific islands. And that's what I would call a centralized 
legally defiant evasive entity, right? And the fact that it was evasive didn't help either. And it was, again, sued out of existence. And so the thing that's interesting to me is that we're going towards a, a realm in exchange where the governments of the world will not tolerate non KYC exchanges. And the thing that's fascinating about decentralized exchange is who is it that is doing the KYC in a decentralized exchange? Like that's going to be really weird, right? Uh, so yeah. to me, the, 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 yeah, so the, the, exactly. So the music exchange business has been reduced down to something like BitTorrent, which is kind of utterly decentralized, completely protocol based. And it's, it's basically now kind of the decentralized music sharing service for everyone. But the thing that's really weird about what's happened, I think, in that world is that most people are just like, I'm going to pay for Spotify, right? right? So I feel like, you know, I feel like There's the, like the, this the pendulum future that goes back and forth with these things. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So I think there is a pendular effect. And I think one of the things that's fascinating that people aren't kind of of the mind of is, is if you, if you look at the, the exchanges that exist in the fiat world, take a look at something like the NASDAQ exchange. You have this whole phenomenon called flash boys where you have people that are aware that light travels about one foot every nanosecond. And because of that little fact of physics, they're actually going to rent office space that's as humanly close as possible to the exchange, you know, because they're effectively front running people who are geographically, you know, further away from the exchange. So, you know, the thing that's really interesting about this is, is uh, now you're back into the laws of physics. And, you know, how do you decentralize that? I think the only way you can decentralize it is to create some kind of like heartbeat that slows everyone down to the same slow pace or you know there's there are there are mechanisms that can make the playing field equal but ultimately physics is physics so you, you know they you, you can't get the kind of liquidity that people are used to on wall street uh through it through a dex so anyhow that's just my little mood and mindset around central versus decentral exchange very interesting i'm learning so much right now so just transitioning from exchanges to icos what do you what do you think goes into an ico that makes it successful like what are some of the the core principles we, we touched on icos earlier but i know you advise a lot of them and i know you have some probably some interesting insights on this yeah so i i have this whole philosophy and it's starting to kind of evolve a little bit. But I would say that there's probably three major ingredients. Uh, I'd say the first and most important thing, and these are kind of meta ingredients, right? So a lot of, I think, what people might be looking for are sort of tips and tricks. But in a way, I think some of this DNA is even more fundamental. So it may not be possible to kind of trick your way through this. So for example, the first thing that I think is most important is team, right? So if, you, if you're looking for tips and tricks... I guess the tip is, is to trick unbelievably amazing people to work with you. <laughs> uh, maybe that's not a trick. Uh, you know, so convince is actually the, the more logical word. Cause I think if you have tricked incredible people to work for you, then like, you they know, may not be they so may incredible. Actually, they may, and they may actually catch on and, and yeah. then leave. So, you know, so the point is, is that, you know, team is, is, is epically important in these things because there are so many dimensional variables in, in these things, right? So. You know, speaking with a, you know, a, a prospective, uh, you know, ICO today and, you know, they were definitely professing like we're just getting insanely conflicting advice from everyone, <laughs> you know, and, uh, that's 
astonishing, right? Because in a sense, this kind of, there's good teams actually have this amazing kind of meta skill, which is figuring out who you can trust, which is like, how do you put that in a box, right? Like it's pretty hard thing to to be able to do right is to figure out who you can trust but that's like a quality of high quality teams and good teams right so you know obviously there's other little factors things like past experience and you know returning shareholder value and domain expertise and the fact that they may have shipped product or ship product in domain you know all these things relate but you know ultimately like team is like my number one thing and just obsessed with like teams and looking at the teams and trying to figure out what the teams are going to do um i'd say that the number two big thing that i i'm caring about these days is uh, what i call time to crypto economy which is another thing that's kind of hard to tip and trick, right? Which is, you know, basically the tip here is ship faster, <laughs> you know, uh, which, you know, and so in a way the DNA is so existential that it's really not a tip at all in the sense of like, you're either going to ship quickly or you're not. And that's almost existential and it's tied to things like your team, but it's in some ways tied to your playbook, right? Like for example, there are some of these like really ambitious kind of eat the world's white paper based ones that, you know, won't ship until 2019 or whatever. I, I worry about those. Yeah, exactly. You know, so <laughs> that's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I guess you have a cough. It's Tron. Anyhow. Tron. Uh, so <laughs> exactly. So to me, like, I, yeah, I don't see it. will be really happy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy those. Uh, so time to crypto economy <laughs> matters to me a lot. And in a way, I feel like time to crypto economy is a hallmark of an experienced team. Like, in, in other words, like experienced teams are actually used to the idea that they actually have to show things and that, that there's actually this access to capital requires that they show results. And, you know, so the notion that they're just going to go dark for like a year and and deliver nothing or, you know, obviously open source helps to mitigate that. So you can see check-ins and things like that. But like, you know, if the thing doesn't build for like months at a time, then like, why are you, why do you exist? So time to crypto economy is a strong number two. And the number three, which is almost like a just in case function is I, I definitely am in the mood of evaluating governance structure. And when I talk about governance structure, I'm really focused on the use of proceeds, right? Which is, is there a mechanism that handles the custody chain? I'm a little bit less hell bent on the kind of security dimension of the custody chain. I mean, I, I know it's important, um, but to me, uh, I'm more interested in if everything works properly, who's getting paid what by who, when, using what mechanism, right? Because... Uh, you know, one of the biggest crazinesses is, is that we talked about kind of programmable money and we talked about kind of how network stakeholders are all being properly and beautifully incentivized in order to add value. And the thing where we have this giant kind of black hole in our industry is, is that we're not really properly valuing and incentivizing the creators of the network in the first place. Right. And I guess what I mean by it's not proper is that, you know, it's just a crapshoot, right, of whether the people that did the things end up owning the right amounts of everything and it's proportional to like, you know, there's like Bitcoin core committers from way back that have actually no Bitcoins, you know, and it's just very mm. like rando, right? So to me, the governance mechanisms matter, especially with the industry standards we have today, right? So the industry standard today is, you know, put Ether into my private wallet and hope to hell that we do the right things later. Right. And, and that's the standard. 
which is a completely rubbish standard, and shame on us. So that's kind of why I'm paying attention more to governance as well, which is, does the thing have fiduciaries? Does it have a board of directors? Does it have a custody chain that makes any sense at all? Are there multi-sig wallets? Who's who's handling the money on behalf of whom? And, you know, how does it get doled out when and using what mechanisms, you know, and things like lockups, you know, are there, is there token vesting? You know, what are the mechanisms? What are the mechanics? Are there uh, reserve coins that are locked out of the economy through a smart contract? You know, all of these kind of mechanics. So, you know, those things are very important. I think, you know, to me, all of that has to do with properly aligned incentives, right? Because one of the weird things is if you have founders that get kind of crazy paydays for, you know, congratulations, I'm having a party because I launched an ICO, that's pretty rubbish and it disincentivizes them from actually building the thing that they promised to build. Right, because so, they got paid, so where's the incentive anymore? Yeah, they can just retire, right? It's like, wow, I'm... What a great life. Now I'm just going to, you know, sleep it off or whatever. Uh, wow, that, dude, that ICO was stressful. Let's, let's have a party yeah. and relax. <laughs> I remember, um, I talked to one of the former, the former CMO at Factum and she was telling me how they had an outside committee hold on to the money so that, like, they would evaluate when they'd reached a certain milestone, they would give them some more. And so there was essentially a group that they had created inside of Factum that would, act as like an arbiter to provide the money in stages so that they didn't lose their steam from what, like exactly what you said, getting the ICO money and then saying, okay, woohoo, we're rich. We don't need to build anything anymore. We're good. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, even that kind of orthodoxy can have problems, right? Like as we saw, the thing that's fascinating about what happened to Tezos is that they actually suffered from too much governance. Right. In the sense that they actually had one of the fascinating properties of a Swiss foundation is that Swiss foundations have a property of immutability. Now, I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek here because obviously everything in legal terms is mutable. But like the theory behind a Swiss foundation is once you set the rails, it's hard to mess around with them and do silly putty. If you set the structure wrong from the get go, things just are permanently screwed up, you know, and, and obviously permanently is just too strong of a word, but I would say that the machinations that Tezos had to go through to get to where they are today is probably almost equal in energy usage to the DAO hack and the fork between Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. So, you know, maybe even more, right? It's, it took, it took longer to do and it was probably more damaging to the credibility of all the parties. So I guess probably more. So I would say, you know, pretty epic governance problem and one that would have been super hard to anticipate because when you actually looked at the structure itself, it looked amazing, right? It was like, wow, really, really strong governance model. Yeah, they created all this stuff that's going to make sure that they stay incentivized and everyone's going to do well and the company's going to do well. Totally, totally. And, you know, uh, at Money 2020, uh, I think uh, one of the Brightmen said, uh, it is not lost upon us the irony that governance is our main problem. You know, it's, 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 you know, it is, it is ironic and, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, but I, I, that's my third topic. So I think really just to reiterate, uh, team, time to crypto economy and governance are my, those are my lenses. And I'm very kind of obsessed about that. The other lens that I'm really interested in is actually, I'm really interested in certain vertical industries and less in others. So I'm very interested in, uh, financial services 
and I'm interested in social platforms and I'm interested in gaming. In particular, the social platforms, I'm kind of interested in sharing economy types of things. And then I'm also interested in gaming. And the reason why I'm interested in those three is I actually understand the adoption patterns in those uh, areas. So I can really kind of reason about like why. Yeah, it's very those... clear cut what's going to happen. Yeah, like what are those users going to do? Like the gamers are going to treat this as a game. Uh, the financial people are going to treat this as finance and then the social people are going to like build networks and you know just out out run everyone you know because these networks have network effects and so i feel like that's going to be you know first and last mover advantage in that space so i i think i think those are my those are my hot buttons uh so i think i also have kind of a bias when it comes to certain vertical industries and i do have kind of a no a a bunch of no-fly zones some of which are dictated by uh, my own personal kind of lack of domain knowledge, you know, so I, I feel like I stay away from, uh, things like healthcare where I feel like there is, there are good things to do there. Uh, I stay away from energy. I feel like there are good things to do there, you know, but I just don't feel like I'm the like wizard of those verticals. And then there's <laughs> other no fly zones where, you know, like AR VR, where I feel like it's partly that I don't feel like I'm the wizard of AR VR, but I also feel a little bit like I'm not sure when the large scale consumer platform, you know, I think Oculus right, may be launching something the hardware soon. Yeah. of everyone accepting it before the software can even. That's my feeling. So, so in. adoption, adoption pattern types of issues for me there. So anyhow, so I, I guess, you know, I have a few favorite verticals and then I have a few kind of no fly zone type verticals, you know, so I, that's, that's also, I guess, an embedded, embedded part of my criteria. So you, you talked about your, your lenses that you look at things through it, look at ICOs through what are, what are some projects that you think are doing a really good job of that, of uh, having a strong team and having a good governance. And um... it's fascinating to me because I think that one of the things that you end up with is you kind of end up with sort of like a pick two type of a scenario in many cases. But one of the things that's super interesting is to see how like team and time to crypto economy can sometimes be sort of fungible. Like, like for example, if you don't have that seasoned of a team, if you're actually, if you actually have crazy traction, then you're really radically reducing the risk for people, you know. Uh, I mean, a couple examples. Well, so, so, you know, like, for example, like, um, like there's, there's one, there's one, uh, Pundi X, right? Which is, uh, you know, it's a basically a, a retail point of sale terminal for crypto that's based in Indonesia. So, you know, I think that there are somewhat seasoned entrepreneurs in that team and they are venture backed, right? So from the perspective of governance, they actually have the benefit of kind of a venture backed governance model. So one of the strongest traditional governance models that you can have. But the thing that made them extremely compelling is that they were shipping product ahead of their crowd sale. So, you know, they, in terms of time to crypto economy, it wasn't even a conversion play where they already had a fiat economy product and they were going to ship a crypto version. It was no, they were already shipping a crypto product, you know, day one, right? So the thing that's fascinating about that is, is that you can kind of mitigate a lot of risk just by saying, look, we did it already. Like we're, we're done. Like we have it. Here it is, you know, so, so, you know, to me, you can kind of mitigate other risks. The only, obviously governance, you can't just ignore it because, you know, even if you ship the perfect product, if your game plan is to run off with the money, then, you know, the governance still has to exist. So 
to me, that was an example of one where they had, you know, basically zero time to crypto economy plus a strong proven governance model. So that, that was kind of a winner to me. And teams, teams kind of vary, like they vary with respect to kind of their experiences and things like that. You know, I'm working on Celsius Network and, you know, Alex Mashinsky, the founder, you know, he's raised a billion dollars across seven startups. And what's actually more important is he's returned about three billion to investors. And, uh, you know, oh, wow. he's definitely, he's, he's the type of person. And when you look at time to crypto economy, like, yeah, they have not shipped product yet, but like, they're, they're definitely shipping a product, you know, and they're well on their way to do that. And so, so to me, like, uh, you can kind of look at team experience and time to crypto economy as a little bit of back and forth. You know, you can move the slider a little bit and say, okay, well, this team is a little bit less experienced than that, but they've already shipped. This other team is like extremely experienced, but they haven't quite shipped. You know, and obviously the ideal would be they already shipped their product and their team is incredibly experienced and they have the right governance models in place. So, you know, that obviously that's the trifecta. And, you know, when you see that, you know, all the Christmas tree lights go on. <laughs> so, Miko, for a more general question about the crypto space, what do you think are some of the most exciting things that are that are in the future for this space. So you talked about ICOs, you talked about the governance models of time to crypto, but even you called it time to crypto space or time? What? Uh, time to crypto economy. So time, you know, time to, to me, crypto each, each one of these things is its own crypto economy. And I just want to see how soon we're going to have one of those, you know. Okay. So now perhaps for some of the exciting things that you consider that are coming that not necessarily aren't are going to happen within the next few months, or maybe they are, but what are some of the most exciting things that you see in the future? I'm honestly excited about legitimacy. Now, I know that sounds kind of absurd, but like hmm. what I'm really talking about is the migration of the early majority. And I feel like, you know, the stuff I was talking about, about regulation, exchange regulation and KYC and like creating these kind of like, uh, cause, cause the, and, and things like governance tool chain, you know, all this stuff moving on chain. Now, I know that this sounds kind of like watching paint dry, you know, and things of that nature. But what we're really talking about is the migration of the, the real economy on, onto the blockchains, you know, and, and to me, that that migration with the legitimacy of it and the credibility of it is going to be the kind of seismic shift that we're going to see, you know. So so from my perspective and, you know, my mood is that that is an inevitability and it's really just a question of letting open source do its magic, you know, because it's already kind of tilted the playing field in favor of its own matrix. So we just have to kind of watch it and watch the thing play out. I don't know if it's how long it's going to take. But to me, because the genie's out of the bottle, we're just watching the kind of inevitable creation of this pure bread crypto economy. Now, if you look at the open source mindset and the metaphor, proprietary monies don't disappear. And in fact, proprietary monies end up even more valuable than they were at their heyday of centralization. But the thing that's, of course, also happening at the same time is, is that the rules of the field become the rules of open source, which is driven by consent. So what does that mean? The thing that's fascinating is that when you look at the end game of some system like that, what happens is, is there's an economic concept called an externality. And an externality is a situation where you have a cost that somebody is paying that they did not consent. 
right? So the classical example of an externality is pollution. So if someone is polluting, if they're dumping pollution on your head, mm. then you didn't like ask, could you please dump pollution on my head? I love it. You know, like nobody ever said that, right? So that's called an externality, right? And an externality is a sign that somebody's being screwed, right? So the thing that's really intriguing about having systems that compete for your consent as a matter of their organic nature is that you're going to see progressive elimination of externalities. And the reason why is that people just vote with their feet. If you have a blockchain with a 1% tax in it and you release an exact fork of it without the 1% tax, every single person will move out of the 1% tax chain into the 0% tax chain because they don't want to pay, right? So the point that I'm making is, is that let's take an externality like wealth inequality. Right. If you want to create a coin that has day one, one billion users, you could potentially create a coin called proof of poverty coin, where if you don't have enough money, you know, and you're able to prove it somehow. And this may be take place someplace in the future when you have like, you know, fingerprint readers on ten dollar smartphones, you know, there may come a point in time where you're able to do that and you should just airdrop the heck out of those people because you're going to get a billion users on the first day of business because why? Because those people will consent to participating in a network where they're getting free money. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that what I'm really looking forward to is the legitimacy and the credibility, the migration of the early majority And obviously a lot of that comes with kind of more regulation and more legal infrastructure and more kind of KYC, you know, and all of this kind of increased legitimacy, more robust financial systems. But when you actually ultimately look at moving things like governance on chain, what you're going to end up with are entities that are even more transparent than today's public companies, but without auditors. Right. So you, you don't even need like these big Arthur Anderson, you know, but Arthur Anderson was the audit firm that audited Enron. Enron. Yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. That. So, so you aren't, you aren't even going to need any of those people because what you're going to see on the chain is literally the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Like the, it's what you're going to see on chain is exactly what happened. Right. And if you're able to have on chain exactly what happened, you're going to have a world where the most highly valued assets and companies and projects and organizations are going to be the ones that are the most transparently able to declare everything that they're doing. Because if you take two organizations, one that's transparent, one that's intransparent, the one that's going to have the more value is going to be the one that can prove that they actually did make the money as opposed to the one that's being all shady and hiding. So I guess what I would say is, is, you know, in the long future, I'm very bullish on the emergence of on-chain transparent financial disclosure. And I'm really kind of bullish on the emergence of like essentially like automated auditability and kind of like a much cleaner financial system with a lot fewer externalities for everyone. So for you, um, the pseudonymous anonymity of Bitcoin is a positive feature in, in these type of events, sort of tracking, uh, almost like a checks and balances. Well, it's interesting to me, right? Because I think that it's, it's going, I think eventually we're going to have to move towards financial systems that have 
KYC and AML, right? And so because of that, I think there will be attraction for privacy coins. But I think one of the things that may happen is that there may be a low regulatory tolerance for privacy coins. So I don't know how that battle shakes out or whether there's like a winner in, in that whole world. But ultimately, I think if we are going to win the global race for, uh, you know, kind of best currency systems, best financial infrastructure of inclusion, I do think we need mechanisms that enable us to prevent money laundering and to prevent terrorist financing and to prevent generally criminal activity. So I do think that uh, I'm, I'm in that respect, I'm really not sufficiently crypto libertarian for most people. Yeah, I think you just made a yeah. bunch of enemies <laughs> in the crypto world for saying that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so what big things are you working on now, Miko? Well, I'd say I've got some really big projects in pipeline. Uh, you know, I'm obviously uh, working on a bunch of ICO advisories. Big one on horizon is Zed Network, which is a global remittance network. I think that'll be exciting. Another one that's about to kind of do private sale is the hub protocol, which uh, also pretty excited about. So, you know, I'm definitely continuing to try to represent some of these leading uh, token sales. Uh, and, you know, I'm really optimistic about these kind of projects through the lenses that I describe. Uh, you know, one one caveat, obviously, in mind with all these things is, is that none of this should be construed as financial advice. And, you know, everyone should read all the white papers and do their own homework. And, uh, you know, this, this isn't, a, you know, I'm not an investment advisor or a licensed broker dealer. Absolutely. And neither of any of us. Yeah. Do your research. Yeah. Everyone should, everyone should do their own research and they should formulate their own thesis and they should invest accordingly. I think that's my mood and mindset. And don't invest more than you can. Yes. That is afford to lose. Don't buy it off more than you can chew. Absolutely. A fantastic thing. Can never be said enough. Yes. I, I like that a lot, you know, because really like if people are not practicing, you know, safe crypto, then they're just going to damage themselves and give crypto a bad name. And, you know, the whole, the whole, you know, it'll all end in tears. So, you know, I, I do feel like, uh, people should be prudent and, you know, continue to play the kind of Warren Buffett principles that, that make, uh, investing reasonable. Yeah, I feel bad for, <laughs> and I won't name names, but I know some people who actually got into the hype train as, things were really like starting to pop uh early january and there was like a huge spike in in crypto prices and then uh ended up investing at that time and then everything crashed and they ended up losing money that they had borrowed which is a really oh. i mean it's a decision that everyone tells you is a bad decision but we, they got caught up in the hype and then now they like lost half their money and like Oof, oh God. <laughs> yeah that's so it's definitely painful so. to hear about i mean it's it is it's hard to know it's hard to know when it's happening like you can't really call market timing isn't really a thing and you can't call a top or a bottom and it's just you, nobody knows right so to me you know, you just have to kind of like try to keep your balance and and do you know do things that at least make a figment of sense and you know you should be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful yeah it is it is very very tough to buy at the bottom and sell at the top and uh, you know i did a bit of trading and we always used to say the only people that could buy at the bottom and sell at the top consistently are liars so, ha, i love that yeah. and the the other thing that i think is kind of prudent to think about as well though is that you know, in a sense, like this, this may be like a Vinnie Lingham quote, which is, you know, if, if you, if the price went down and you didn't sell, you didn't lose money. 
which I also think is a valid mindset. I mean, obviously, if you <laughs> obviously if you like mortgage your house and you were forced to like, you know, because that's the bottom line is that you know, in in some ways, like the 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 small wallets can end up being kind of washed out, right? Because you have to end up paying your rent or you know what i mean so like if if you if you're in way over your head then you're forced to liquidate at a lower price because you know you just have to continue to pay the bills and eat groceries or whatever right so the, the point is is that that's exactly why you shouldn't deploy more than you can afford to lose because like that's when you are forced to sell at a disadvantageous position if you've actually put in an amount that you can't afford to lose then you can just chill out. And, you know, in my thesis world, you can just chill out because, in you know, in the way that I look at it is, is that it's going to kind of incline towards, you know, the up, right, it, over time, right? It, I just don't have a prediction of exactly when that will be. And obviously, uh, I don't necessarily claim to know which coins are actually going to do that. But like, you know, if, if you have a diversified basket, like, in my thesis world, you can afford to just hodl and wait and see what happens as long as you've got like reasonably credible coins. Agreed, agreed. That makes a lot of sense. Miko, is there anything else that we haven't asked you that you want to share or that you think that our listeners need to hear about? I think that I guess that, you know, in terms of like a closing note, one of the things that I think is, is really important, you know, pe people are trying to kind of reason about this whole phenomenon, right? And one of the things that they, they keep asking me is, is they ask kind of like, how is it that Bitcoin can kind of go up in price? Like, how does it go up? Like they, you know, they're scratching their heads, right? Cause they're like, uh, shouldn't it, you know, what goes up must come down. And then they're kind of like, what's the, what's the real fundamental value of it? And, and then the question becomes, could it, it, but it can't just keep going up, could it? Right. So I have two answers for, for you, right? One of the answers is this, right? Which is what is the fundamental value of the existence of cryptocurrency? You know, to me, the value is that we now have an alternative to centralized financial infrastructure, right? And what we also know for a fact is that centralized financial infrastructure is subject to Lehman Brothers implosion, you know, too big to fail. It's subject to a lot of machinations that are undesirable and produce the Zimbabwe oh government. So centralized financial infrastructure demonstrably generates large externalities, right? So we know that it's totally messed up. And so having an alternative is valuable. It's inherently valuable, right? In the sense of like, it's a hedge, right? So if you look at this as a hedge against what if that whole centralized economy thing doesn't work out for y'all, right? Like if it doesn't work out for y'all, then you better have something else waiting in the wings. And now we do. So, so that's what I would say is I would say the fundamental value of this cryptocurrency is really that we now have a financial alternative. So that's big. The second thing that I wanted to express is that people say, oh, but it can't just keep going up in value. So the thing I want to explain is that fiat currencies actually are terrible stores of value. And if you actually measure the value of the U.S. dollar since 1913, it has dropped in value in terms of its buying power by 95%, right? And so mm -hmm. the point I would make is, is that if you're measuring the value of something like Bitcoin using the ruler of something like fiat, 
your ruler is shrinking, right? So the, the point is, is that relatively, yes, it will appear as if the value of Bitcoin is just increasing and increasing, but in fact, your ruler is decreasing and decreasing. So, you know, I think that's a mindset that you can use to kind of reason about this. And obviously, like, you know, all, there are all the caveats about deflationary currencies and their ability to store value, you know, still apply. So I guess what I would characterize this as saying is, is that, you know, this stuff is here to stay. Open source money, it's programmable, it's decentralized, it's incentivizing people. And people are getting a lot of the benefits and understanding that it's capable of holding pretty large arbitrary amounts of value. So now that we've proven that, we just have to wait for it to inflate even further. So you see this sort of your first comments. I guess maybe we were going back a little bit to that first, uh, to that message in that first uh, transaction with um, that Satoshi put in there about the banks and that because open source programmable money in, in a certain way is not susceptible or not as susceptible to that, it is one of the features that could keep it gaining in value. Yeah, that's that is that is the idea. Uh, the thing that's funny is, is that it seems like an inherent property of complexity theory that complex multidimensional economies will have periodic collapses. So I think that cryptocurrencies should not be free from these kinds of like ups and downs. And in fact, the volatility should be an emergent property of the nonlinearity implicit in the system. But at the same, by the same measure, centralized economies are also not free from that externality. So the point is, is whichever alternative you choose, you're going to have periodic collapses. And that's just an organic function of a multidimensional system. So I guess what I'm trying to express is, is that all things held equal, the thing that we will find is we'll find that, you know, the eventual uh, removal of externalities as a function of consent based economies will drive more foot traffic than the proprietary monopolistic currencies that we've seen you know, up to this point. And obviously, if the proprietary monopolistic coins start to attempt to compete by releasing new features, then they actually have a nice chance of continuing to exist. And I think that is what's going to force them to compete better. So what I'm hearing is don't get anxious and sell your Bitcoins. Just hold on to them. Ha! <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's my mood, right? And obviously, you know, again, everyone should, Hello. you know, consult their own uh, thesis and they should develop their own thesis. And, you yeah. know, obviously if they need to rebalance or if they have some, you know, personal reasons why they should, you know, I had a friend who was a Bitcoin millionaire that was in a dead end job. And I basically said, why don't you just sell some bitcoins, right? And in a set, right? And, 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 and that's, and that's, and that's exactly what they did is they said they, you know, this friend of mine sold bitcoins and got a job at doing like an ICO and was like super pumped up about their life, you know? And so, because it's not all about like, <laughs> I know, couldn't even one. sell one or a fraction of one just to get runway to, to have a better life. So, you know, to me, like it isn't always about like just having a fixed mindset but you know i really feel like people should uh you know try to reason about it for themselves and come up with their own way of looking at things and you know just try to be as uh self self uh 
try to be as good to yourself as you can. You heard it straight from Mika, guys. It's okay to sell your Bitcoins, at least a couple of them, in order to pay your bills and eat and not be miserable. <laughs> there you go. Okay, well, I think we're already over time, but we were having such a fun conversation. Yeah. I, I couldn't stop it. So thank you again so much for coming on, Miko. It was a lot of fun talking to you. I, I think I speak for both of us when I say um learned a lot from you. It'll be interesting to see what what comes in the in the future for for cryptocurrency for Bitcoin. Wonderful. Well, you know, I really appreciate your show and the kind of high quality that you guys bring to this space. And, you know, I really enjoy that we had a nice stretch of time to really get get deep into these topics. It was fun. It was fun. Awesome. Thanks, guys. So if you want to learn more about Miko, go to Miko.com, M-I-K-O.com. Yes, he actually owns that domain. And you can learn more and see more of his talks. He has some really good talks and uh, see what projects he's involved with. And go to evercoin.com, obviously, as well. That's it. Okay, thanks a lot, guys. Bye, Miko. Thank you for listening to a BitCryptic podcast. The podcast is hosted by Rob Peterson, Alain Leon, Deng Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Website created by Coco Lu and Kevin Van, and show notes and articles made by our editor-in-chief, Deng Du. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and Google Play. We're a new show, so the reviews really help us out a ton. You can also find us on Twitter at KeepItCryptic, that's K-E-E-P, I-T-C-R-Y-P-T-I-C. You can also find us on Medium or Steam it at a bit cryptic, like the show name. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep it cryptic.